Today's sermon text reading comes from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. One of my dreams in life, and this is really going to make me sound like I am a dad, but one of, one of my dreams in life is that I would have a perfect yard. You know, I, I mowed lawns when I was in college during the summer, and, and some of these homes that we would mow were just, just beautiful homes that had these perfect lawns that were lush and green, worthy of a, a golf course. And I foolishly thought that as soon as I had my first home that my lawn would look as good. But I am now realizing that unless you have a sprinkler system, you have no shot. But every year I keep trying to finally achieve the perfect lawn. And in my pursuit of lawn perfection, there is nothing worse for a dad like me than one of the kids finds a dead dandelion. And it's just, it's almost like slow motion. You just see that the sucking in and then the blowing out and just all the seeds blowing all over your lawn, it's the absolute worst because that one dead flower produces all these seeds that are then going to infest your not even great yard, but it's going to make it worse, infested with dandelions. Think one little yellow dandelion is harmless, but when the flower dies and the seeds spread and fall into the yard, that is when you are in some trouble. A dead seed brings life. Now, it's actually a, a pretty bad analogy to start this sermon because I don't want dandelions in my yard, but, but try and think of that analogy in a good way, which is what Jesus is doing here. So think maybe more of a, an apple tree that produces a fruit and the fruit falls into the ground, dies, and produces more apple trees. And so the process continues. Think of this in a good way, death producing life. That's the power of the gospel, death through creating life. Is the seed of Christ, his death, it is his body that goes into the ground. That is the power of life. And now remember that in the timeline of the gospel according to John, we are now at the very beginning of the final week of the life of Jesus. So last week, earlier in John chapter 12, it was Palm Sunday, Jesus returned into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people were all waving their palms as they wanted this victorious king. And the, the crowd was half right and they were half wrong because Jesus is a victorious king. He has come into the city to defeat the greatest enemy. But the people thought the victory would be a military victory, a political victory. And yet we see here that Jesus is a different kind of king. The power of Jesus is not through military strength, but through a humble death. 
like the death of a seed that is planted in the ground. And so consider this short little statement about the dying seed as an introduction to why Jesus is now back in Jerusalem. For all that is going to happen starting now in John 12 all the way to the end, this is sort of an introductory statement that Jesus has come to die, to be placed into the ground like a seed so that there might be new life. And look with me real quick at verse 23 where it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That phrase, the hour, that phrase has been repeated a number of times so far in the gospel according to John. But so far at every point, the hour has always been pointing towards the future. So in John 2, 4, it says, my hour has not yet come. Or in John 4, 21, the hour is coming. John 7, 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So the hour has always been something in the future, but now that we are at the end of John, during this final week, Jesus is saying, the hour is finally here. It is the hour of his death, and his death is going to reveal to us what Jesus is all about. Another overarching theme that we have seen so far in the gospel according to John, this is actually one of the principles that makes John different than the three other gospel accounts, this idea of Jesus being revealed to us, the glory of God being revealed to us. So now the hour has come for the full revelation of Jesus Christ. You see as well in verse 23 that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now when we hear that phrase, Son of Man, we we usually think first of the humanity of Jesus. We think Son of Man, you know, Jesus is a son, he was born to, to Mary, therefore he is a man. Son of Man, that's referring to the humanity of Jesus. Now, it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky, but, but that phrase, son of man, is not so much in reference to the humanity of Jesus, but actually to his divinity. So if you were to go back in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and this is what he sees in his vision. He sees clouds of heaven, and there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So we see there in Daniel 7 that the Son of Man is glorious. He has a kingdom that is global, has different languages and different tribes and nations. It is also an eternal kingdom because the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days, meaning the Son of Man is actually God. So here in John 12, Jesus is again making the claim that as the Son of Man, as God, that it is time for His full glory to be revealed. This this mysterious secret that has been hidden throughout the ages. The revealed glory of God is finally going to be made known to us. 
And how is it going to be made known to us? It is going to be made known by Jesus being crucified on the cross. You know, it's always fun to have inside information on a secret. So your, your, your buddy tells you that he is going to propose. The bride doesn't know it yet, but you know it. And so you feel like you have the inside information. Or there's going to be a big surprise party for one of your friends. The apartment is all decorated. Everybody knows it except for the birthday girl. And everybody is very excited for when this secret is going to be made known and there's going to be a party. It's exciting when secrets are revealed. And the hour for this secret to be revealed is now here. You know, people have been wondering for years, how is God going to be glorified? How is a holy God going to live with a sinful people? How are these great tensions of the Bible, how are they going to be solved? And that hour has finally come. The hour has come for the seed of Jesus to be placed into the ground. It is the hour now of Jesus' death. Now, if you've been around the church for a bit, you just, you know this without even thinking twice about it. Oh, yeah, of course I know that. Yes, Jesus is glorious because he died. Even if you're brand new to the church, even if you're not a Christian and you're secular, you, you probably know something about Jesus dying on the cross, and that's pretty fundamental to who he is as a person. And that's good. We want lots of people to know this story. We want this to be a very well-known story. But the danger, though, in it being so well-known is that over time, it can lose some of its shock that Jesus, who is the Son of Man, who has a kingdom that is global and eternal, that the hour of his inauguration is now here, that this mystery is finally going to be revealed. And how is the mystery going to be revealed? It'll be revealed through Jesus dying. That's shocking. Nobody ever thought it was going to end this way. So do not ever become so comfortable with the gospel that it loses its shock. This is an upside-down statement, that there is life through death. In the economy of our world, death just means death. It's the end. It's the final chapter. Death is the opposite of life. There is nothing beyond death besides defeat and humiliation. And yet... In God's upside-down kingdom, death is not actually the end, but death is the path to life. The death of Christ is the beginning of his reign. It is the path to his victory. No death, no resurrection. No death, no atonement for sin. Death was always God's plan, that there would be life through death. This is what we would call a paradox. You have two opposite competing ideas. You have life, you have death. Typically, they do not go together. Typically, they do not make sense when you combine them. But here is the Christian paradox, that the heart of the gospel is that there is life through death. And so the hour of this paradox has now come. Jesus is back in Jerusalem to die. 
like a dandelion that is dead and is about to blow its seeds throughout the world, the death of Jesus is now spreading life all across the world. There is going to be a global and eternal kingdom that is now about to begin. And now with that in mind, if Jesus who is the king and Jesus becomes the king through his death, it would make sense then that the members of his kingdom would reflect a similar principle. Jesus begins his reign through his death, and then his followers will reflect something very similar, life through death. I want to read for you one more time verses 25 and 26, because I want you to see that these are the words of Jesus. This is not just a pastor's advice, it's not a pastor's pontificating just, you know, deep philosophical thoughts. These are the actual words of Jesus, that we have to die to ourselves if we want to be honored by the Father. So this is what Jesus says, starting in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's from Jesus. At the hour of his death, when Jesus is back in Jerusalem, where he is going to die, Jesus says to the people, if you want to be united to me, then you must follow me in death. Now, before we go any farther, this needs to be clear, that the death that Jesus is talking about here is not first physical, because, I mean, we see the disciples and the early church, they do not just, you know, just immediately jump off a cliff. That that is not what Jesus is talking about. It's, it's, It's a deeper spiritual death. And second, we need to clarify that our death to the self is not the same as the death of Jesus. There are some Christian traditions that make the denial of the self the grounds of our salvation. They actually make it a religious work. So the more you die to yourself, the more righteous you are before God, the more accepted you are before God. And we need to be very clear, we need to be crystal clear that the only death that saves is the death of Jesus Christ. His is the only death that counts. His is the only death that can pay off the debt that we have incurred in life. His death is the ground of our salvations. It is not ours. We cannot add to his death. We cannot take away from his death. It's his work alone. That needs to be underlined, highlighted, shouted with great clarity that the death of Jesus is what saves you, not your own. That's the gospel, the death of Jesus Christ. Then we must ask ourselves, If the death of Christ is the grounds of our salvation, how are we united to Christ? How do we receive the benefits of what he has done for us? So we would say, you are united to the death of Christ by faith. Faith does not save you, but faith unites you to Jesus. Faith is your connection to Christ. So then we would ask, well, what is faith? We would say, well, well, faith is turning to Christ. And if you are turning to Christ, that means you are turning away from yourself. You are turning away from your own life. That is what we call repentance. So faith 
repentance, two sides of the exact same coin. You can't have faith unless you are repenting. You can't repent unless you have faith, because once you are turning to Christ, you are turning away from yourself. So the life of Christ, the life of his eternal kingdom is found through his death. He is the grounds, but how are we connected to him? You are connected by faith and repentance, or more simply put, we are connected to Christ when we die to ourselves and we are found in Christ. So again, we see this paradox. It's the paradox not just for Jesus, but it's the paradox for our very own lives, that we experience new life in Christ when we die to ourselves. That's what verses 25 and 26 means. You know, most people, when they first hear these verses, think, well, we need to immediately sign up after the service to be missionaries in the most dangerous place, and we need to become martyrs. Now, that, that would be a great application. I do not want to discourage that application, but that's not the primary meaning here. It's, it's not so much about what, what we do for Jesus, but rather how do we view our lives in light of Jesus? This is about our identity. You see, faith and repentance means that we are to die to ourselves. There was once a man, his name was John Saunders. John Saunders, he lived for himself. John Saunders had his own master. He had his own rules. John Saunders loved his life. But the moment that John Saunders became a Christian, that old man died because he now has new life in Jesus Christ. He has a new identity. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so therefore, we must hate our old lives so that we would find new life in Christ. Now, real quick, verse 25, about hating one's life. What Jesus means here is not hating oneself in the sense that somebody struggling with depression or anxiety might share with a counselor. That is not what Jesus is intending to say here. I can say that because if you go to Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Same word, hate there. And we know that Jesus did not actually hate Mary and Joseph. In fact, the fifth commandment out of the Ten Commandments is that we would honor our father and mother. And Jesus honored his mom and dad. And so what we just even instinctively know when we read Luke 14 is that what Jesus is meaning when he says hate his mother and father, what he is saying is that in comparison, on on this big scale, out of your love for God, out of your love for the triune God of the universe and your desire to obey Him and to honor Him, in comparison, it would actually look like you might hate your parents because on the scales, the scales are so much tipped in God's favor. But we are not to actually hate our parents. So the same principle is at work here. 
because of our love for God and because of our love for our new life in Christ, because we have died to our old lives, that in comparison to what we now have in Christ, we are to hate our old lives. But that does not mean that we are actually to hate ourselves. You know, in a, a different theological category, we are made in God's image, and therefore we are to love ourselves. And we trust in God's providence, and so we are to even embrace our circumstance. So we just, we have to get our, our categories right, and Jesus uses different categories at different moments. In fact, if you are talking to somebody that is struggling with depression and might even say, I, I, I hate myself, what that often is, and I need to be very careful because depression, anxiety, insecurity, it's not just, you know, simplistic solutions. And so I, I want to be very careful, but what, what often happens, struggling with depression and saying, I hate myself, is that it is not that you are humbly focusing on yourself, but you, you, you're self-loathing because you fail to realize all that God has given you in Christ, that in Christ there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, that it is the good pleasure of the Father to give us the kingdom, that God has created a world of beauty in heaven, which is where we are headed, is a land of love. So again, I don't want to be too simplistic, but often people struggling with depression are not struggling with self-esteem, but are actually self-consumed, and they need to be set free from the self, which is exactly what Jesus is commanding right here, to be set free from the self, to hate your old life, and you would be reminded of all that you have in Christ, this new life, resurrection life. When I was in high school, and perhaps some of you will remember this if you are my age, but we went through a craze where everybody wore WWJD bracelets. Many of my friends that were not even Christians would wear these bracelets. They were one color in big white letters, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And so the football guys, they would wear WWJD bracelets. It's a reminder to, to work hard and to play fairly. And the Honor Society kids wear them because college applications wanted you to, to be involved in community service like Jesus would do, and class council wore them because uh, Jesus was nice to all people, and that's what politicians ought to be. And so, uh, and all, all of that is, is good. I don't think Jesus is against any of those things. And I certainly would rather people wear bracelets that say, what would Jesus do, as opposed to brace, bracelets saying, don't do what Jesus would do. And so they, they were probably a mostly good thing. But here is the danger with WWJD bracelets. The danger is that over time, we make the gospel about our own lives, about creating a resume, a life that we can present like an honor student would present to a college. God, look, God, look at my life, be impressed. I love my life and you should love it as well. But that is not what Jesus is saying. He is not saying to love your life, to be impressed with your life. He says, no, you are to hate your life. You are to repent of your life, and you are to leave your life behind. You are to die to your life so that you might be alive in Christ. It's a paradox. Like Jesus, who received life through his death, so shall you die to your life so that you might live in Christ. 
As you heard in the, the prayer this morning, I was in St. Louis this past week with one of your elders, Jerome Gorgon, for what is called the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. It's this, this big gathering that happens once a year where pastors and elders from all over the world fly in. So there was well over 2,000 pastors and elders there. And we come together once a year to deliberate on the future of the church. It, it's very formal. There's lots of parliamentary procedure and decorum, and Jerome, who is a lawyer, just thought, this is awesome. And me, I'm a little fidgety, so I I get a little bit lost, but Jerome was a lawyer. He he was loving it. The final meeting on a Thursday night went to one o'clock in the morning. That's two o'clock in the morning our time. And so, Presbyterians are, are, are very serious people. I was very tired at two in the morning. We had to fly out at four, and so uh, two hours of sleep. And out of all the debates and discussions, the main debate of this general assembly was, is it ever appropriate to put a different description describing your temptation before the title Christian? And namely, given our current cultural context, is it ever appropriate to use the term gay Christian? Now, before I go any farther, I just want to be clear that nobody in the Presbyterian Church in America believes that the practice of homosexuality is good. Everybody affirms that the actual practice is bad. But there are some, it is a minority group, there are some that would say because Christians can struggle with same-sex attraction, that it is okay to use the language gay Christian if you mean by it celibate non-practicing. Now, of course, this would be a much longer discussion, hence the reason for why we were up till two o'clock in the morning, but the General Assembly overwhelmingly decided that that language was not to be used because it is contra to our new identity in the gospel. Now you might ask, well, why why does it matter? I mean, if if people are agreeing that we shouldn't practice it, what's so wrong with a little word about our temptation before the word Christian? And here's why it is so dangerous. And again, this is uh, straight from the text this morning from John chapter 12. Here's why it is dangerous. If you have faith, and if you have repented, this means you hate your old life because you are dead to it. If you are alive in Christ, then you hate what you once were. The narrative of your old life and all your various sinful patterns is now dead to you. And in comparison of your love for God, you are to hate what you once were. Now, certainly this does not mean that you will no longer struggle. Struggle with any type of sin, whether it be sexual sin or the sin of greed or pride or anger or coveting or lust. Of course, Christians struggle. That's Romans chapter 7. And Christians will even keep sinning. But we would never say... You would never hear somebody say, well, I am a coveting Christian, or I am a greedy Christian, or I'm a sexual struggling Christian in reference to the old self because the old self is dead. That's what we leave behind. That's the kind of life that we hate. We repent of it, and then Jesus Christ, by the power of the resurrection, makes us new people. And we are to love that new life, and we are to put to death 
what used to be true of us. The old self has died so that we might live in Jesus Christ. And so you should be very thankful that for the sake of the gospel, the PCA took a firm stand this past week that our new identity is in Jesus Christ alone, not any former patterns of sin. When we die to Christ, we are alive in Him. And once we are alive in Christ, why would we ever use terms that refer to our old selves? It is, yes, a paradox that death leads to life, but that is how the gospel works. The death of Christ is the death of ourselves, which is the path to real life. Now, many people will look at this section and they will walk away confused. I I don't understand this, and that's sort of how a paradox works. Some people, though, will be worse than confused. They will be even angry. Because the air that we breathe in 2021 is the air of self-preservation. That however we are made and however we are put together, that is always best and needs to be celebrated, never put to death, always must be preserved. And so in 2021, we all have these, these little bubbles that are our identity, and depending on our inner feelings, depending on our self-perception, we get to determine our own bubble. And anyone that is trying to poke the bubble is considered an unsafe person. And we used to say the phrase unsafe, and we meant physical harm, but today in 2021, unsafe is anybody that threatens your own bubble. We don't like those kind of people that want to pop our identity, but that is not the gospel because Jesus does not want just to pop your bubble, he wants to crucify it. He wants to crucify all that you are. He wants to crucify your old patterns of life. He wants you to die to yourself, not because Jesus is out to get you, not because Jesus is against you, not because Jesus does not love you, but because he loves you. He wants the old self to die so that you might live in him. Here in John chapter 12, Jesus is back in the city. The hour of his death has come. The hour that Jesus is going to be revealed has now come. Jesus is back in Jerusalem to die. Like a dead seed, he is going to be planted in the ground so that the fruit of the gospel might extend around the world because there is life through death. And this morning, Jesus extends that same invitation to you to die to yourself so that you might live in Him. So die to yourself. Die to your perception of the self. Die to your wants. Die to your needs. Die to your desires. Die to your identity. Leave that all behind so that you might be united to Christ in His death, so that you might be united to Him in His life. Let's pray. But Father, first we give you thanks for the death of your son, Jesus Christ. We know that it is ultimately only his death that matters, that when your son was placed on the cross and when your son said it is finished, that it is his death alone that saves But Oh, Father, we know so that we might be united with you, that you call us to die as well. And we all have different lives, different sins, different struggles, different joys, different excitements.
Lord, but for the sake of new life in Christ. Father, we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'd help us to put that all to death so that we might be united to you in the resurrection life of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.